Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability we all have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. I'm your host, Jihi Jolly. Today we're talking with Bobby Epsteiner, a surgeon in Massachusetts who shares the story of how he beat the odds to pursue his dream of working in medicine, even when he was told he wouldn't make it. This episode is part of a series of career stories we'll do on how people in different fields beat the odds using their Buddhist practice of chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo to get to where they are. Here's Bobby. I'm Bobby Epsteiner. I live in Northampton, Massachusetts, and I'm a doctor and work as an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. Awesome. So we're going to start with like kind of some context questions just so people can understand your experience with Buddhism, and then we'll kind of dig into today's topic. And theme-wise, as I mentioned, I think that we're going to anchor this on the idea of kind of refreshing yourself when you're when you're overloaded or fighting something hard, whether that's multiple responsibilities or it's just like pursuing a really tough dream, because I know your path to med school seemed to have been a crazy experience in and of itself. So we'll touch on a little bit of all of that. But if you could just sort of tell me the story of how did you encounter Esther in Buddhism and why did you start chanting originally? So I encountered Buddhism because my parents practiced Buddhism before I was born. They actually met through Buddhism. And so from when I was very little, I was always around it and they would bring me to meetings and I would see them chanting. And when I got old enough, they encouraged me to try it. And so I probably started practicing in elementary school and just have kept up my practice throughout my life. Amazing. Yeah, I'll dig into to some more of that shortly. But second kind of context question is why did you want to pursue medicine? Like, was that sort of a, a lifetime dream? And, and how did kind of that journey begin for you? I wasn't thinking about medicine at all, really, until I found myself having my appendix out. And it was an experience where I had all this pain. And before I knew it, I was in surgery and the problem was fixed. And I just thought that was really cool. And I was impressed with the doctor who took care of me and did my surgery. And from that moment, I started thinking that I'd like to do that. How old were you then? I was 16. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. And so around that age, did your Buddhist practice look consistent even as a teenager or was there sort of a moment that you were like I'm actually going to start chanting every day I would at, at that point I was chanting every day but I feel like it was almost more out of habit than necessarily that I felt a deep connection to what I was doing when I went to college and I was on my own and my parents weren't there to sort of encourage me to have my own practice. I continued practicing because I saw the benefits of it and realized that it was something that I was doing for my own life, not because somebody was telling me to do it. So that's probably where my my own individual practice sort of separate from, from them started. Mm. 
I see. If you don't mind my asking, like, was there something specific going on at the time that you were like, I'm, I'm going to do this and I'm seeing personal benefit? Not really. It was just the fact that after my appendicitis and making the decision that uh, I wanted to be a surgeon and I wanted to go to medical school, I knew that I had to do very well in college and have the grades to be accepted to medical school. And a lot of the courses I took didn't come natural to me. My brain is sort of more English history centric rather than math science. So it was an uphill battle and I felt that I needed my practice to be able to bring out my potential in my classes and do well enough. And so I would chant before class, I would chant before tests and, and center my mind so that I could get the best result. And through experiences of that working, I decided to continue practicing. I see. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That's also kind of interesting, actually, because I feel like the the kids who have, you know, the the science aptitude versus the humanities aptitude sort of self-select into career paths that match them. So when you're the humanities kid doing a scientific career, I'm I'm amazed that you you really decided to stick with it, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could major in whatever you wanted. So I was a Spanish major in college, but I had to take all the pre-med classes and I didn't want to make a career of Spanish. I thought it would be useful in my medical practice. And so, yeah, the, the science was definitely tough, especially physics, especially calculus, a lot of, a lot of challenges with those classes. Yeah. Oh, wow. I can imagine. So I, I know that that path to sort of get into medical school was like an early kind of big experience, right? That was one of the first like big ones you, you experienced. Definitely. I felt that I was able to do well in my college classes if I put the effort in, but that was not true of the MCAT exam. I, I definitely put in the effort, but did not feel I got the result that I wanted. And I was a little bit at a loss as to what more I could do to do better on that test. And so instead of focusing on that, I used my practice to basically make the impossible possible. My advisor said to forget about even applying to medical school because he felt my scores were too low. And so I had been encouraged through our Buddhist practice to when, when things are discouraging or, or external forces are trying to discourage you from your dream or from what you want to forget about whether the thing you want makes sense or not, and to just commit your mind and your Buddhist practice towards that goal, regardless of whether you think it's possible. And so that's what I did. It seemed like an impossible task from all the advice I was getting. And I got into medical school by the skin of my teeth. You know, I applied to 20 places. I was rejected from 19 and I was one of the very last people to get in 
to the medical school I got into finally. And so I really felt that it didn't make sense for me to be there in some ways. And without my practice, I don't think it would have happened. Mm. Wow. Yeah, that's really encouraging. I feel like, yeah, for people who I'm just thinking from the perspective of anyone who's listening, who who might be like, a, you know, that crossroads of like, maybe, do I just change course now or or do I keep going? If you don't mind us unpacking that just a little bit, like, do you feel like there was were any turning points that you remember that allowed you to actually practice that like piece of the Buddhist philosophy you just described, you know, because it's one thing to be told, like, you know, don't give up, but to internalize that and like bring that out through your chanting is really hard to do. So I'm, I'm curious if, if you remember any kind of turning points or kind of like what the internal process looked like during that time period for you. Well, I think, I think I was very discouraged with the MCAT exam and my experience with that. I, I took the exam once I got a score that I was told wouldn't cut it. And I studied longer and harder to take it a second time and actually flew back from South America to take the test because it was in person in those days. And basically I did worse than I did the first time. And it's a little hard to recover from that. And spoke to others in our Buddhist practice who really encouraged me that, you know, once you decide what you want to do with your life, that you just don't give up if, if you know that it's right internally. Mm. And I think, although I lost sight of that at times by refreshing that determination and continuing to receive encouragement from those around me, I was able to always come back to that and not get discouraged when one school after the next sent the letter saying that I wasn't accepted. So mm. it allowed me to, to not give up hope. And I felt like, I felt like even though my score was low, I felt that if I could really make a connection with those interviewing me and explain to them why I wanted to be a doctor and, and why it was my path in life and my mission based on my experience that they would see through that mm. and and in the end that was true and so that's that sort of constant focus and 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 support is is what allowed me to get there i think yeah, absolutely. I, I hear you. And that makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, I, I imagine so much has happened since then. And I don't know if it was smooth sailing once you did get into into med school, but if maybe we can fast forward the timeline a little bit. So ultimately, yeah, how did you choose sort of what to, to specialize in? And then what does your work look like today for anyone who's listening that might not know what, what, it, what it really means day to day? So I knew I wanted to do surgery based on having had surgery and thinking the surgeon was cool. <laughs> and so in medical school, you try out different specialties and I ended up just liking the ear, nose and throat physiology and how everything worked. And there's so many unique things like how people hear and 
being able to take care of children and adults and being able to do various surgeries that I sort of landed on that specialty. And I would say it, it definitely wasn't smooth sailing in medical school. Um, I went to a great medical school where there was a lot of camaraderie among the students and it wasn't a very cutthroat sort of environment. And so I, I was able to do well, but again, it's, it, it was a very competitive specialty to get into. And so I think based on my experience of just how big a struggle it was to get into medical school, I felt like nothing was impossible. And, and so I just went for it and I'm, I'm very happy with in, in my practice. I get to, I, I work in, in Western Massachusetts and it's sort of urban and rural, and there's a wide spectrum of, of, patients and I'm able to speak to patients in Spanish on a daily basis, which I really enjoy. And people are really grateful for so that they can communicate without using an iPad interpreter or something like that. So most of the time, I'd say about 80% of the time I'm seeing patients in the office and of, of all ages with any ear, nose and throat concern. And treating them medically or in some cases recommending surgery. And then the other 20% of the time I'm in surgery, which is both really fun and sometimes very stressful when you're a, when you're a training surgeon, there's always someone that is mentoring you and always someone who's above you in case something goes wrong. But then when you're not training anymore, that person is you. And so it, sometimes that responsibility is a lot. And so that's sort of one aspect of my life. But in addition to that, I have two young kids and a wife who's also a physician. I coach ice hockey and I have my leader, leadership position in our Buddhist organization. And so sometimes it's a juggling act of, of all the, of all of those things. But I think the, the, my Buddhist practice has sort of allowed me to be able to, to juggle a lot of different things in the beginning of my medical practice. There there's one particular surgery where if the surgery goes wrong or, or just if it's one of the risks of surgery that, someone can have paralysis of their face. And so when I would do that surgery is very nerve wracking, especially in the beginning, because you just never want to have anything bad happen. And so there is one day where I had two of those surgeries back to back and they both went well, but I had this terrible migraine at the end of the day. And I had had migraines when I was a child and I hadn't had them for years and years. And then they were back. And so I've been able to overcome that by every day in the morning, I, I chant. And basically when I'm doing that, I'm sort of going through my day in my head to be able to organize my 
my thoughts and decide what I want to accomplish and visualizing how I want things to go, whether it's in the office or in surgery. And, and it's been an adjustment to try and not only be a doctor, but be in charge of running a medical practice and working with medical professionals and staff under me when I'm stressed. And I find that if, if, if I don't take the time to do my morning practice, that I see that and I feel that in how the day goes and in how I respond to things. Mm. I mean, it's, it's very clear that you can only control yourself and mm. you can't control what other people do. You can't control that certain things come up. All you can control is how you react to that. And so when I chant in the morning and I arrive at my day having done that, I can't, I have much more wisdom and much more compassion and I'm, I'm sort of my best self. And so I guess that's a long answer to what my life is like and how I've used my practice as my medical practice has started. And I've been in my current medical practice since I finished my training for about six years. Mm, I see. No, that's actually really helpful. Thank you for, for sharing all of that. It's so interesting because like I always try to think from the perspective of people who are new. And of course, you know, people who are really new to chanting always ask like, but how does it work, you know? And it sounds like what you're saying is like there, this kind of daily practice of bringing your best self to the table, no matter what's going on, is probably the best answer as to why people chant. But I, I also wonder, like, it sounds like it's such a high stress job. And like, like even the journey to, to become a surgeon was like a high stress experience. Is that something that, um, you had to like learn how to handle those kinds of high pressure situations or, or did you always kind of do well in them? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I'd like to give some credit to playing ice hockey as a kid. I was a goalie of all things. And that's when my migraine started actually was I would be in the goal and I would be so worried about letting my team down that I would put a lot of pressure on myself and then I would know I would have a migraine coming when my vision would start to get blurry in one of my eyes. And I, I don't know that I totally overcame that as a kid. I'm only five foot six. And so I never made it to the NHL and my hockey career just <laughs> sort of ended. But I really do feel like being in those high pressure situations and you know, sometimes being nervous about this or that and doing it anyway and, and persevering through it. I, I think some of that I learned from hockey. I think some of that I learned from just just our Buddhist philosophy of that never give up spirit where I would be struggling with something and and another person from the practice would would give me encouragement or say, read something to me either from one of our publications that that would just sort of give me a refreshed attitude towards what I was doing and to allow me to persevere. And then I think all of those little victories, whether it was a hockey game or whether it was a high school 
biology test or wherever it was and you 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 know they're like steps mm. and so you just keep going up and then I got so used to school that it was sort of like just when's the next test <laughs> and knowing that that it was going to be worth it because I had this goal in the back of my head so that was sort of a, as long as I had my sights on something bigger it made it easier to get through all of the smaller challenges along the way. Yeah, yeah, I totally hear you. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like one of the things that comes up so much when I interview people and we hear all the time in in the SGI, in the Buddhist community that people don't often realize that you can you can practice or sort of build like internal muscles or like characteristics or spiritual muscles in the same way that you can you can do so externally or intellectually. And it sounds like that what you're describing, those like steps just to to build like the actual muscle of not giving up when it gets hard or dealing with stress when it's, you know, mounting and all of that. Yeah. When I was accepted to medical school, I saw the power of practicing this Buddhism in my life because I felt like I wouldn't have achieved that if it weren't for my practice, not because because I practice, I get what I want, but because I was able to, number one, not give up like my advisor told me to, mm. number two, to be able to forget about people trying to discourage me and just be determined to do it no matter what and get the result through my effort. You know, it's nothing, this Buddhism isn't anything magical. It's not as if you chant for something and then it just appears. I do feel it brings out potential in yourself that you didn't even know you had and makes you so in tune with life and the environment and your goals that you're just sort of in the right place at the right time and and you make the right choices and you persevere when it's difficult and so i think all of that allowed me to achieve that goal mm -hmm. and then once i had that experience I applied it to other challenges in the future. So that, that was really the turning point that I think solidified the practice in my life. But, you know, for example, my wife's a physician too, and we both went to medical school together. And when we graduated, I wanted to do ear, nose and throat, and she wanted to do obstetrics and gynecology and we we both had to find a training program that we liked and the training program had to want both of us and so you go through this process where you interview at different hospitals and then you put them on a list and from highest to lowest in terms of where you'd like to go and it was a tremendously stressful process and you have no idea where you're going to be living for the next five to seven years. Mm -hmm. And my wife and I 
applied to many, many places because we were both wanting to go together and it's harder to match into two spots than just one. And so when we got our result, it was quite unexpected and not in a bad way, but just we, we matched in one of our top programs, but it was really far away from home where we didn't know anybody. And so that was really scary and, you know, hard for our families to picture us leaving and not being close. And so that, that was a time where it was very difficult to chant or practice because I felt so depressed and, you know, as, as time passed and as I was able to claw myself out of that by continuing to practice, even though sometimes I didn't feel like it and reading our, our publications, which gave me encouragement from other stories and podcasts like this of, of people who have overcome their challenges, we decided to just make the most of it. And in the end, we had the most wonderful training experience. It was a, a great environment to train where there was a lot of camaraderie. And, and of course, it was stressful and long hours and, and all of that. But it was definitely the best place for both our lives mm -hmm. and, and definitely opened doors for us to come back and, and find our current practices where, where we're both very happy. And I never could see in the moment that, that that would be the case. I thought something was wrong. I put in all this effort and, and, and things didn't work out the way I thought was best. Mm -hmm. But in retrospect, I didn't know what was best for my own life. And only now with hindsight, do I see that making all the efforts, I did get the best thing for my life. I just didn't recognize it at the time. We trained in a great environment. We were able to start a family. Both our girls were born in Iowa, which is where we did the training. And we have such fond memories and friends from all over the place. And if I could go back and do it again, I, I would, I would do the same thing. So I, I, that's definitely one of the, the sort of times where I really had to continue my practice, even though things were really difficult. Mm -hmm. And even though I felt that something was wrong or something wasn't working and, uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I hear you, especially the part about how difficult it was to continue, because I think that's something, you know, chanting consistently, participating in, in Buddhist activities consistently, it's not easy for anyone. It's called a practice for, for a reason. But but along those lines, I, I'm also curious kind of what role the like being part of the Buddhist community has played, because of course, we chant nam myoho renge kyo daily, and that is the core practice. But a huge part of the SGI community is that we don't do it alone. And yeah, I'm wondering like if that play has played any, any role or how you think about that. I, I think it's played a large role and it's expanded my life to be, to think beyond my own self. In our Buddhist practice, we're encouraged to chant for others and encourage other people and help those who are suffering 
and share Buddhism with, with those who would find it useful for their lives. And when I was an undergraduate, I remember going to younger members' dorm rooms and chanting with them and talking to them about what was going on and, and encouraging them to overcome their struggles. And I think I found out over time that sometimes when someone you're supporting has a breakthrough after a lot of struggle and and you've been supporting them through it over time that that's even more meaningful than your own victory mm. and so i think by being a part of the buddhist community it allows me to expand my life beyond my own self and i think that adds to my happiness in that i think i'm much more happy both working towards my own dreams as well as helping others accomplish theirs. And I think it, I think that like caring about other people and caring about their challenges also makes me more compassionate at work and more, more respectful of those who work hard behind the scenes in my office and, and things like that, mm. because it's easy when you get stressed to let that affect your your interactions with people and when i i'm able to chant in the morning and and not be so caught up in my own head i'm always remembering the the other people who are making you know my day possible mm -hmm. and so i think you know in our buddhist practice daisaku ikeda there's so many examples of him noticing things people never notice and thanking people who are doing what may seem as as small things which he doesn't consider small mm -hmm. and so through through this practice i've been able to be more mindful of others and and it really feels like in our small community practice in our town that people really share each other's struggles and, and encourage others. And instead of it feeling like one person facing a mountain, it's the whole group facing the mountain together. And I, I think the, uh, the sense of community is, is definitely a big part of the practice and, and something that's kept me going. Mm, yeah, I, I totally understand. And it, it's funny, I was at a meeting earlier this week and someone shared like, like, kind of what the community is for is essentially like standing shoulder to shoulder with other people during their crucial moments. And that's like not something that people really do, you know, in society, like you, you catch up with friends here and there, you work with people, but like really going through crucial moments together is something really amazing about having a, having the community. So thank you for sharing that. Sure. Um, so I, I'll wrap up with our, our last two questions. First, you know, based on what you've shared at, at any time period, do you have like a favorite Buddhist concept that you always go back to or a favorite Buddhist quote, whether it's from Daisaku Ikeda or Nichiren or, or anything? Yeah, I do. I'll read it. So the, this comes from the writings of Nichiren Daishonin. 
and who was a one of the the founding practitioners of our particular type of Buddhism in that he basically distilled the practice down to one of the teachings of the original Buddha. And so Nichiren Daishonin in his writings, one of his teachings is called General Stone Tiger. And basically, I'll, I'll quote from it briefly, the mighty warrior, General Lee Kuang, whose mother had been devoured by a tiger, shot an arrow at the stone he believed was the tiger. The arrow penetrated the stone all the way up to its feathers. But once he realized it was only a stone, he was unable to pierce it again. Later, he came to be known as General Stone Tiger. This story applies to you. Though enemies lurk in wait for you, your resolute faith in the Lotus Sutra has forestalled great dangers before they could begin. Realizing this, you must strengthen your faith more than ever. That's the end of the quote. But what that means to me is it's... It points out the limitations we put on ourselves in our own mind. So if we think something's impossible, it is impossible. But if we are not defeated in our mind and think that something's possible, that's the most important thing. And then you'll continue to move your life in the direction of making whatever that is possible. And so I like the visual of when he was determined, he put the arrow right into the stone. Mm. And but only when his mind was determined could he do that. So that that definitely inspires me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's really awesome. That visual is also incredible. So I I yeah, maybe I'll I'll ask my closing question. If for anyone who's listening, and again, you know, they might be new to Buddhism, if you could give a piece of advice just based on your own experience to anyone who might be feeling like either overwhelmed or stuck or or feeling maybe like you once did, you know, that what they're pursuing is impossible or unmanageable, what piece of advice would you give them? Well, really two things. One is to never give up on your dreams, even if people tell you things are impossible. And number two, focus on things you can control. Mm. So in my own life, I've wasted a lot of energy on things I can't control. What other people think, what other people do, things in my life that are just the way they are, even though I don't want them to be that way. But if you have a dream and you stick to it, and you you bring your potential out of yourself, you can accomplish that. And the way to get there is by focusing on the things that are in your own control, such as the own your own efforts towards that goal or how you treat other people. And if you focus more on yourself than things external, I think you'll be happier.
Bobby's story reminded me of these words from Buddhist philosopher Daisaku Ikeda, which I'll leave you with today. I think they can be applied to any situation, whether you're currently in the midst of a major personal battle or pursuing a big impossible dream. He writes, In life, when we feel we have reached a limit, that is when the true battle begins. Just when you despair and think it is impossible to go any further, will you become apathetic or will you say it's not over and stand up with an unyielding spirit? The battle is decided by this single determination. On that note, if you're new to chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo and would like to learn more, we have great resources at bootability.org. Also, as always, if you'd like to get connected to a local Buddhist community, you can email us at connect at sgi-usa.org. That's all for today, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>